Hi, this is Matt Joe Gow, and you're listening to Radio Karam, which is local community internet radio. And uh, we were having a chat about community radio earlier and how important it is to Melbourne, how important it is to the scene here, the music scene, but also the wider community. So check out Radio Karam, tune in. Special guest on today, I've got his synopsis up before, um, needs no introduction, uh, Charlie Pesina, um, if you haven't heard of him, um, I'd, show my, I'd show someone a photo and then they, they recognise him, 37 years of police service, uh, homicide, um, piranha, armed robbery, um, correct me if I'm wrong Charlie, a senior sergeant. Um, internal investigations, drug squad, as I mentioned. Um, yeah, numerous accolades um, recognised um, by the force for his bravery and other bits and pieces and investigated some seriously high-profile cases in Victoria um, and was very much the front man, um, the guy you'd see on, on the TV, very dapper and well-dressed. Um, so, yeah, thanks for coming on the show today, Charlie. Pleasure, James. Pleasure. Excellent. And with us is Danny Cassetti, as usual. Hello. And Simi Liotta. Yeah. So, um, as usual, the best conversations are already offline. So, we thought we'd get the get the thing rolling. And um, how are you, Charlie? I've been well, mate. Plenty on, I can tell you. Uh, as I said, the gigs are starting to kick off, off again with uh, – because now, having left the police um, – I uh, became a private investigator, so I'm doing a lot of uh, reviews of coronial briefs for families for suicides and that type of thing. Uh, corporate talks are start kicking off again, uh, yep. and a lot of sports clubs and that type of uh, issues. And uh, fundraisers, uh, part of Blue Ribbon, uh, Westgate branch, and we've got a big fundraiser coming up at, uh, at your, that you're well aware of. And uh, yep. Uh, and the radio program every Thursday with 3AW, which has been going on for a couple of years. And there's always a phone call coming in and I uh, either and I want to talk to you about crime or give you some information. And that never stops. Uh, yeah. And I'm great to have that rapport with people that they can uh, contact me through AW or wherever. And on the speaking circuit with uh, ICMI uh, Speaking Bureau and they get you a few gigs here and there. So always pl- something trickling in all the time. Awesome, mate. Um, right off the bat... Like there's there's lots of detectives in Melbourne. Why do you think you ended up being like the face or spokesperson, or you were front and centre when you had to face the media? What, how do you reckon that turned out that way? Well, you know, it's amazing uh, because the homicides being so high profile, you do what we always call a stand up, and you use the gut, the media as a tool. Uh, you know, you need to get the message out there if you want to get information. And you see it this very day. You're making, you see these detectives making appeals, and the difference from where I was, having joined uh, Homicide in the mid eight, late mid to late eighties after the Drug Squad, you know, having spent seventeen years there you, as a team leader, and you do then do the stand ups. But now it's changed dramatically, and you know the five of us. There was five senior sergeants running teams of detectives at Homicide, and we become household names basically. Mm. People knew me, they knew Ron Idles, they knew Jeff Maher, Riley League and Lucio Rovis. We were the five ones and we'd forgone promotion and stayed in the squad and mentoring our young detectives. We had a team of ten detectives, two sergeants and eight detectives as a statewide response. But I think badly the command have changed that to the current time where you don't see the working detective often speaking to the camera Mm. and making that appeal. What you see is the senior officers 
Now, to me, that's not right, you know, and we're in a situation now where the normal citizen just can't ring the homicide squad. They can't ring the rape squad. They can't ring major crime squad. You've got to go through crime stoppers. They want to instill that rapport and build up uh, a uh, connection with the community, yeah. but they've siloed themselves in, the, in, in police command. So the only way you can get information to a squad, you must ring Crime Stoppers. It's the only challenge you've got, and it's so, so frustrating. So going back to my situation, see, you'd be, you know that homicide's a major media attraction, so mm. they're going to come along. They've got a job to do, and you use them as the tool to get the message out there. So you do the stand-ups, you give them very brief information, and as the investigation then progressed, you would then do further interviews with the media to then get your message out there. Well, now we're looking for a particular car, we're looking for a particular suspect and that type of thing. So you're in the forefront all the time. And as I said earlier, you did become household names with the community. And uh, amazingly, uh, because of that, and I never thought of the overflow from that exposure, I retired in December 2009, and here I am today, um, still with a high profile, mm. based on that initial stand-ups that you do at the homicide scenes. People remembered you. I don't know whether it's because of your appearance, your name, as opposed to the old Johnny-come-latelys that are just the, the normal run of the course, which no longer happens. So I suppose I was lucky in that regard, and I pinched myself at times and say, well, you know, why have I got this high profile still? Because I'm still out there. Uh, I'm a media commentator. Mm. Uh, one of my occupations is uh, you're the go-to person. Pointing question. Uh, just yesterday, day before, we had the uh, the knocking back of uh, Denya's a parole. Yep. And Channel Seven ringing you, Channel Nine ringing you. Then it was a major feature I did on AW yesterday with yep. with DD. Um, and people can relate to you, um, even though you don't know. You know, radio, as you'd know, is a, a funny medium because you don't know who unless from ratings of how many people are actually listening. And uh, unless, you know, unless you talk to people in different environments, oh, you listen to you, I listen to you, I listen to you. So yep. there is a following there. Um, and even when I left the police force, um, I worked with the Herald Sun for about two or three years uh, doing columns for them. Um, so I was lucky enough to keep my name in the media and out in the public uh, arena uh, which is maintained to this very day, and I work on the fact that one day it'll be Charlie Who, and so while it's there, and I'm still victim uh, orientated, and like to assist people where I can and give them advice. Yeah. Often people ring the radio studios and say, "Well, look, um, apart from on air asking questions, um, oh look, uh, can you get Charlie give me a call?" And people get surprised when I actually call them, <laughs> and because ultimately you don't know what they're going to tell you. It, there might be information there they they get. They might be like me, frustrated of going through Crime Stoppers, and I say, no, I don't want to talk to the waiter, I want to talk to the cook. Mm. But you can't talk to the cook being the investigator. Mm. You've got to go through Crime Stoppers. That's, a, that's to me, is a backward move. Yep. You've lost that connection. Yeah. And people then say, you know what, I can't be bothered. I've tried going through Crime Stoppers because I had no other means to contact a detective in a squad. Um, and then ultimately... I uh, try to do it online, and I, that was too convoluting. I oh, know well, I'll, I'll ring them, and then you might get someone who's an unsworn or not an actual police officer, and he say, "Well, look, I just can you put on the information? I want this per the detective to ring this source, this information source." Oh, we can't put that down, and I just hung up in frustration. So if that's happening to me as an ex-member, 
a retired member, the frustrations it must be having on, on the general community when we're asking for information. So they've got to do it better. They're not mm. doing it better at all. And unfortunately, even to expand, you know, look where we are today. They've taken their eye off the ball. We're 800 members down in relation to resourcing. Um, they've got you want to you get a crime committed against you. Say so what do you do? You call an on, on call a call centre, mm. and and you're a number, you're a figure. You're giving you a number. Say so, well, hang on, are the police going to come out? Well, no, we're not going to come out. We're not going to do this. Yeah. So they've gone backwards in big ways, and so policing has changed significantly when I joined in '71 to where we are today. Yeah. Um, the frontline coppers are getting smashed. They've got over 750 or 800 nearly on, on long-term sick leave with PTSD. They're getting absolutely flogged. Mm. There is no respite for them, and uh, which is a pity. And uh, and now, you know, behind numbers, it's not a popular uh, place to work. Yeah. Um, COVID had a, a big role to play in that, and people are leaving in their droves. And so, yeah, so things are changing, but uh, unfortunately the community is suffering, and, uh, you know, you feel for them. Interesting, mate. Um, just off another one, like when do you reckon the best period of your life was, Charlie, when you were in the in the, in the job? Well, I can tell you quite uh, candidly that my best time was from when I joined as a police cadet yeah. in 71 and then graduated in 73. From that point onwards, it was, it was fantastic until the day I retired in December 2009. And it wasn't a... A decision I made. It was a decision made for me to to leave in frustration. You know, we were eventually rotated out of the homicide squad. Who? Can you ex- yeah. expand on that? Well, the situation was this: there was five of us. We, we'd forgone promotion. We loved what we did. So, I loved every day of my life of policing. And uh, so, Simon Overland was the chief commissioner at the time, mm-hmm. and he'd, he was a federal police officer. He came to us under the auspices of Christine Nixon, who was a chief commissioner. So she was Sydney, a Sydney uh, police officer. She came to us, um, and then we she recruited Simon Overland, and he didn't really uh, appreciate or didn't like the fact that we, as senior investigators in the homicide squad, would often challenge him and say, "Well, Simon, you can't do that. We've done that before." So therefore, they had to con- come up with a a reason to move us and say, "Well, I need to get rid of these five people." And the Victoria Police are very good in smoke screening it. So they, instead of in, making us an individual, the five of us, and saying, I'll get rid of these five, they're thought on my side, they keep challenging what I'm doing. Not, not, not to be vindictive, but it's constructive stuff, mm. you know, because we're all in the same boat. We want to solve crime mm. and help uh, victims of crime and all this type of thing and get the bad guys. So he, he came up with this he, uh, this uh, concoction of rotation policy. I'm going to create a rotation policy. So personally, I lived under that for about two years and you felt like you're being punished because I'd already forgone promotion. I could have been an officer, inspector, superintendent or whatever the case may be. Yep. But we chose to remain as we were. We love mentoring our young detectives. Mm-hmm. We gave good service. We, we ticked all the corporate box, high arrest rate, high conviction rate, high morale, no complaints. So he had to come up with some reason to move us and uh, put us to the side. So for two years, we lived under the threat, and that's what it was, a threat of being moved. Well, I don't want to be moved. Where are you going to go? Well, we don't know, but we're going to move you for the betterment of the police force. Well, how is it a betterment of the police force? By moving 17 years' experience personally out of the homicide squad 
Ron Idles was 25 years and it went off. We're all double figures in our team leading and we used to do very politically hot potato investigations. Mm. One of those was uh, fatal police shootings, for example, or deaths in police custody. So that became very political. And the commissioners would then turn to us for our sheer experience and say, well, okay, how are we going to handle this? What should we do? Our integrity and credibility was so high that uh, we could maintain that and then run it through right to the nth degree. And, you know, everything was done above board and appropriately because we were overseen by internal investigations at the time. So at the end of the day, living under that threat for about two years until your number came up, and eventually my number came up with uh, another member. And the, uh, so at the front of board, a panel of detective superintendents who are actually running the crime department. And I still remember it uh, to this very day, and this is going back some years now. I walked into this, and there's a panel of all these detective uh, superintendents. And the first question I got by the chairperson was, can you tell us or give us any reasons why you should not be moved? So 40 minutes later, after pleading my case as to why I don't want to be moved. Was that frustrating, having to... Very much so. To t- yeah. yeah well, my runs are on the board and they're asking That's right. right. And plus, yeah. the two years had taken a toll on me psychologically. Yeah. I don't want to move. I feel like I'm being punished. Why, why is this happening to me? I've done nothing wrong. Mm. But, oh, no, no, it's for the betterment. Oh, Charlie, you, you're, you're one of the top investigators and all this type of thing. But... Don't piss in my pocket. Mm. You know, what's the issue? And I know what the issue was, was was this guy's ego. Okay. And and so ultimately I was moved to the Piranha Task Force. But you've got to think back, and this is how stupid it is and how things change. So we were virtually the last bastion of operational scene, detective senior sergeants. Yep. Every other detective senior sergeant in the crime department were administrators and they wouldn't go out in the field. We were the last ones would go out in the field and crime scenes. That's where people would have seen me at the crime scene at 2 or 3 in the morning, anywhere in the state of Victoria, making a plea to the community and communicating what we're doing to the community. So they said, okay, you will no longer be operational. That was another dagger in the heart. Mm. You no longer would go to crime scenes. You had to remain in the office as an administrator and then your detective sergeant would run the show. Mm. So people were saying, well, whatever happened or what, were you, what was the go there? And this was at a time I was investigating uh, at the time of me moving, uh, prior to moving, I was investigating uh, the double murder of uh, the police informants out of Q, um, Hodson's, the Hodson. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yep. That was a high profile. High profile, which involved police corruption in the drug squad. Oh, yeah, that's right. Yeah, yeah. yeah. With two particular members. Yep. Dave yep. Michel who uh, was uh, uh, convicted of uh, doing a burglary with the informer. Uh, he did about 12 years, Joe. Yep. And didn't uh, say a word either, didn't did say he? a word. He stayed staunch. Yeah. And the other allegation, which is all public knowledge, uh, not putting anything out there, was uh, uh, allegations Paul of Paul Dale. Dale. Yeah. So here we have, just to draw you the picture, and uh, is that's – I'm investigating that for two years and then the rotation policies in place – and this is how it all mishmashed together at the time. Now, I'm, I've been investigating the the Hudson double murders for two years. Then they created secret ta- they Simon Overland creates a secret task force, Petra task force, mm-hmm. to investigate it. He then took my sergeant and my, one of my detectives from me. I was on leave at the time, mm. and I got a call from one of the inspectors. Oh, Charlie, we're, uh, we formed a secret task force. Uh, to investigate the Hudson double murders, and you're not part of it. Well, why is that? 
Oh, we didn't think you'd go. Oh, is that right? Well, it would be nice nice to be asked to go along. So then I called for an audience with Simon Overland. And that was at a time uh, of just about to be rotated out of the homicide squad. And I then had an audience with Simon and said, well, what do you think people are going to think about me now? I've been investigating Hodson Task Force, the investigation for two odd years. Mm. I'm not part of the task force. Investigation involved significant police corruption. Mm. And then uh, I'm uh, rotated out of the homicide squad. I said the opinion some people will make is, well, why wasn't Charlie part of the task force? Yep. Why was he moved out of the homicide squad at that time? He must be dirty. He must be corrupt. Yep. And I challenged Simon on that. That's how furious I was. I said, you've just ruined, at that stage it was uh, 35 years of my career. I said, my career integrity, credibility that I built up over those years, which which means so much to any individual, yeah. is your reputation. Yeah. And I said, you've just taken that away from me because people are now second-guessing me, Yeah. not knowing the full story. Um, oh, no, 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 you're, you're one of the best investigators. We need your skills in this place, but I don't want to be there. Mm. So subsequently, um, I spent about two weeks at Piranha Task Force and uh, my detectives, I was in charge of about five or six teams of detectives just finishing off the underworld murders um, at that how, stage. How hot were the underworld murders, well, Charlie? Well, pretty much uh, smothered by that stage. Okay. There was two or three or four that were unsolved. Yeah. Uh, but so I'm going there at the at the uh, virtually the end of the uh, uh, the Piranha Task Force. Yeah. So this is where it was stupid. And I said to Simon, well, if I'm such a great investigator, why wasn't I put into Piranha Task Force when the thing was really red hot? Mm. So don't give me that. Don't bullshit a bullshitter. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I've been around a block a few times. <laughs> he hasn't. Yeah. So, you know, straight away you've been given the line. Then I said to Simon, why wasn't I part of the task force? And his response was, I was a breakdown in communication. I said, Simon... A breakdown in communication is when I'm on the phone to you and the line drops out. That's a breakdown in communication. Yeah. Why didn't you speak to me? So we've got one person saying to me, I didn't think he'd go. And then we've got Simon Overland saying to me, well, we had a breakdown in communication. Well, the breakdown came from your end. Mm. That's the respect I wasn't given mm. by you got. So what led to it then? I was in the squad for uh, Piranha for about two weeks. One of my sergeants come up, he said, uh, and that because I'd lived so long being operational, he said, oh, we're going out to investigate or lock up someone for this particular murder. So I just stood up ready to go out and he said, well, where do you, where do you think you're going? I said, no, I'm going out to lead the charge like I always say. He said, no, 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 you're not operational anymore. You sit in the office. That night, went home. My wife and I went in about midnight because I didn't want to front anybody, cleaned out my desk, went on sick leave. That's how it affected me. And then I never went back to that day. I never went back to the crime. This in 209. I never went back to the crime department ever again. And then I was offered a situation to say, Charlie, where do you want to go? And I said, well, look, coming from the west, I'll go in charge of a CIB division out of western suburbs. Oh, look, um, we've got a major issue out of Footscray where a lot of Indian students are being assaulted and robbed. It became very political because the the government in India were targeting our government and saying, well, we're sending our students over there, your economy is being boosted, yet they're being assaulted and robbed by your people. What are you doing about it? 
So I then went to the Pranata, uh, to the Embonarum um, Robbery Task Force of Footscray and built that up. We had, I think at that stage, two or three investigators. So I then came in, I built it up, having two detective sergeants, ex-armed robbery squad, mm-hmm. and then I built up the, the investigators to about half a dozen. And my offender group were about 13 years of age upwards, just laying in wait and, and, and targeting and stalking Indian students coming home late at night. Um, so I had a reactive arm in my the two detective sergeants, because Victoria Police is ultimately reactive. They're not proactive very much at all. But I knew my offender group, so I said, okay, you guys investigate the crime that's coming in. And then I became personally the proactive arm of the Mbona Arm Robbery Task Force. And I started then lecturing to all the schools in the western suburbs, year nines upwards. Okay. Because that was my offender group. And they don't know, these kids... And I'm a lot smarter today of where we are and where we've ended up. They don't know, and I'd give them examples about saying, well, just for being present at the time, it might sound fun at the time, just for being present at the time, you'll be charged as a principal offender. One example was we had a, um, a group of kids at a school. They took out this intellectually disabled girl, took her to a park, beat her up with a branch, stole her phone. And there was one girl, 13, 14-year-old girl, all she did was uh, record it on her phone. And I give, I give this is the, the, the story I would give the kids and say, well, when we got these offenders, they were charged with kidnapping, arm robbery and the assaults. Mm-hmm. And I said, you know the girl that actually just recorded it on the phone? She was charged with kidnapping, arm robbery as a principal. Oh. Well, how was that, Mr Bazina? Well, because she's present. Yeah. And that started hitting home. You can see the wheels turning yep. in their heads and saying, oh, the fact they're just being present. So, And then I had an, a major, my initial effect was they were, they were in gangs at that stage and that's where the gang issue where we are today was ignored by Christine Nixon at the time. When she was Chief Commissioner, she said, gangs do not exist in Victoria. I do not want any police officer referring to the name of gangs. You weren't allowed to say that publicly. So she turned a blind eye to gangs at that stage, going back two decades ago. And look where we are today. Mm. So then I put in in place, I had these gangs walking around the street with the western suburbs, armed with machetes and knives, 13 years of age upwards. So I wanted to turn the tables and I wanted the fear factor put back into them rather than them fear making the fear into the community. Mm. So my plan was I would get about 35 police officers. Um, we'd all go be in unmarked cars. We'd be wearing the police tabards for a reason. So we're in, in what we call civvies, <clears throat> but with police tabards. So we'd be on roving patrols all around from Weemstown right through to Melton, Footscray, all around there. <clears throat> looking for these groups of people, when I say these kids. So once that was reported, there was a plan that I, I put together and said, okay, if we see 10 of those, there's going to be 20 of us. We were going to monster them. Mm. So we'd sit there till we got the cavalry called in. There's 10 of them, 20 of us would turn up. We'd monster them, search them, get their particulars. And that had a major impact because they, just imagine 20 of us in police tabards, the community are driving past, 
the positive impact that had on the community. The, the, the police presence is saying, whoa, have a look at this. How good is this? And we were having great successes. Mm. I was having great success proactively speaking to schools. I was having great successes with my reactive arm in doing the investigations. Yep. And then, and then another success was this this strategy that I put in place about if these gangs see a he- set of headlights, they're going to scatter. Mm. So we would be sneaking around, and we were winning the war. We were starting to get on top of the problem, and that was reflected in the less amount of times being assaulted and robbed by yep. victims. Yep. So we we're being proactive in that regard of what we were doing. So at the end of that day, probably a six months work of that we put in, um, and then. In comes Simon Overland again. At that stage, there was a lot of assaults happening in the city. Um, And they created what they call Safe City. That was a a tactic they had by command to address all the assaults in the CBD of Melbourne. And because of my successes, Simon took the credit for everything I was doing and saying, well, what's happening out in the western suburbs with the Indian students as part of Safe City that he instigated? So based on that, long story short, I said, well, how many times can you kick a dog? Mm. And I just left. So there's 17 years homicide experience went out the door, 38 years or 37 years out the door of, of policing experience, having been in the western suburbs policing there and in, in crime squads. Um, but that didn't, def- that didn't uh, you know, defer them. They didn't say, well, hang on, Charlie, what's going on? We can't lose your experience. There was nothing like that. You affect any emergency service people, fire brigade, ambulance and police, you affect the community at large. So subsequently, the five detective senior sergeants that led teams of detectives had all all forgone promotion, all were doing a great job in mentoring and creating these up-and-coming detectives who then became uniformed sergeants that went back out in the field and had that level of investigation experience and that level of leadership that we'd instilled in them from our mentoring that was all gone. The five of us who eventually rotated the homicide squad, he didn't care, and that experience went out the door. That flowed on to the effect on the community and where we are today. Not taking away, you know, there's still good investigators in there, but there's no longevity. They're rotating them and moving out of the squads all the time. Mm. And unfortunately, you know, things have changed dramatically. So unfortunately, that happened and that was December 2009. I made that call. I'd been seeing a, um, a psychologist and uh, trying to get some help there. Um, but the police department didn't care. As long as I was off their work cover books, they were happy <laughs> because it cost them big money. And that's what happens to this very day. There is no care factor and the PTSD has just gone out of the roof. Mm. And, uh, you know, and I used to instill in my detectives and even going out on, on, on call, you know, we might be away from home two or three weeks. When I was on a drug squad, you know, we'd be in garages or somewhere listening to listening devices and that type of thing. We could be away from home two or three weeks. That then flowed into the homicide squad being a statewide response. But my, what my main instilment to my detectives were, your family comes first. Mm. I said, if you've got an anniversary, a birthday or something with your children and you put them second, you come into my job and you come to this on call out and I don't know about it, I said, I'll kick your backside. Mm. I said, because at the end of the day, when the door hits you on the arse leaving the police force, who's going to be there? It's your family. Yeah. I said, at the end of the day, they don't care. So I was very big on having social events with the partners of my team members mm-hmm. because when we would get called out, 
the partners would then know, well, I'm not the only one here. Oh, Charlie's wife, she's um, yep. on her own. Dave's wife, she's on her own. Uh, Dave's partner or so-and-so. So and they could ring each other and say, well, you know, and even my wife became a bit of a mentor at these social gatherings. To the group, to the, few to the partners, partners, yeah. Because they would say to her, how have you coped with Charlie being in homicide for 17 years? Yeah. My, my, my partner's uh, just got there and... And I, I didn't expect him to be gone for a week or two weeks, and you know that's the, that's realization of it. And she would say, "Well, you've just got to support them." And so she would mentor the partners, and that's why it was very big having these social events mm. because you had to do it. So not so uh, apart from being you are the team leader, but you're doing investigations, you're monitoring investigations, you're monitoring court cases that your detectives are running statewide. Mm. And you're also running an administration side of your team of detectives to make sure they take the leave, make sure they're mentally uh, okay and having the old coaches address from every every so often and supporting them, and that's all gone. Yeah. It may happen uh, – uh, the difference is it may happen now, sure, but you don't have the longevity of us of double figures that are in a in a high-profile squad environment. Yeah. Uh, there's a lot of rotation and, uh, you know, unfortunately it's, we'll, we've lost that experience and – Look where we are, you know. Uh, we've got thousands upon thousands of retirees. There's an instant source yeah. that the police department can now call upon. They have in dribs and drabs. But these other support agencies, we've now they created the, the Veterans uh, Police Association, police uh, group who help us with peer support and that type of thing. And, yep. And um, they've got the the uh, blue ribbon that supports people with peer support and, and getting uh, you know support dogs and that type of thing. Yep. Um, not much comes from Victoria Police because once you're off their books, you know it's gone. So why don't we have people join the police force? You know they've got a good hard look at themselves and say, well they're not looking after them. Yeah. You know I get disappointed with the police union. The police union aren't banging a drum long enough and, and loud enough to the government. Of saying, well, our people are suffering, you know, and I say to people um, on the in, in the media, saying, well, and they created the Viper Task Force to address all the underworld the shootings and the drive-by shootings with the Middle Eastern have come up as a major crime group. Did you see that coming? Uh, I did because when I was in the drug squad, uh, they started becoming a lot more uh, prevalent in, in the drug area then. But it's like the triads. The triads with the Asians under the radar. Yeah. And then people don't know much about the Russian mafia, about the Italian mafia. They're all under the radar stuff. Yeah. And I had a, a colleague of mine in Scotland Yard, and what happened in, in, in England, he said, it's going to happen in Australia. This is 10, 15 years ago when I first met him. But we, didn't, we don't adhere or don't look at worldwide issues of, you know, we didn't have the refugee situation. Look yeah. where we are today with the uh, um, the African, particular group in the African uh, country that come over here as refugees. Mm. So they're things we didn't prepare for. Victoria Police didn't prepare for. Here we are, our population's growing to five and a half million. Oh, we're going to outstrip Sydney of uh, six or eight million. Um, and we've got, and they boast about having, oh, we've got 16,000 police officers. And they boast 21,000 total population for Victoria Police. That encompasses the unsworn police, your PSOs, your protective security officers, your custody officers, and that type of thing. But the other thing you've got to factor into, and interestingly enough, Shane Patton was in the media recently and said, oh, we're going to look at our non-core 
police officers about using them on the front line. And I've been saying that for bloody years. You have got, uh, I reckon, conservatively about 800 sworn police officers as police prosecutors at Melbourne Magistrates Court and Suburban Courts. Mm-hmm. Why do you need to be a sworn police officer to be a prosecutor? Isn't that the realms of the Director of Public Prosecutions? Office of Public Prosecutions. It says it all. Mm. You've got a glutton of lawyers out there. Employ them. Take the sworn police officers out of that role. Put them on the front line. You've got a glutton of police officers walking around pieces of paper, getting paper cuts. That's the most dangerous thing that's going to happen to them. As sworn police officers. But it is all dollar-driven. I say that because ultimately they've employed these sworn police officers. They're paying them anyway. Mm. Victoria Police will not spend any more money by employing an unsworn to take the place of a sworn police officer. Yep. And they won't go back to Andrews or the police minister and say, you know what, I need more money because mm. I want to employ 800 extra unsworn people so they I can then release the 800, I'm only picking this figure out, yep. 800 sworn police officers doing non-operational work back to the coalface of policing and that's a two-line two effect. It's going to increase the public safety issue and more importantly, it's going to give some respite to the current frontline coalface police officers. So they're not getting PTSD. We've got 750, 800 on PTSD or sick leave because of that impact. It's a win-win. Mm. But that won't happen because the money just isn't there. Yeah. You know, the, the, the operating budget uh, for Victoria Police is just over $3 billion. Yeah. That's all great and uh, they probably need it because they're running, I think, two helicopters, fixed wing, all the boating squad, all the vehicles and that type of stuff, um, and the operating costs. So it all costs money yeah. in relation to that. But it needs, uh, from a command perspective, to go every year back to uh, the government and say, well, we're just operating just on $3 billion. Yeah, We need either to... Add two or three more billion, but we know where we are financially in this state. Yeah. We're broke. Yeah. So that's not going to happen. We're not going to get the 3,000 proposed additional police officers come into the organisation, not through lack of money, but through uh, lack of people wanting to join the police force. So it's a big issue. Then they didn't anticipate it. So you've got, out of that 16,000 which they, they rely upon, you've got probably, as I said, nearly 750, 800 on long-term sick leave, that part of the 16,000. You've got now police officers on part-time work. They might work two days a week. Mm. Then you've got people every day of the week, police officers every day of the week, in courts everywhere. So conservatively speaking, I've reduced the figure of operational police to be able to respond three three shifts, 24-7, seven days a week, is about 900 yep. responding to you. And I say to people in the community... I said the priority is at this stage significantly, and it should be, family violence. Yeah. That's the main response. Then follows the home invasions, carjackings, the other serious offences. And that's why they're not investigating the burglaries, the theft from motor cars and that type of thing. But I take a page out of uh, Rudy Giuliano's in New York Mm. when he had the broken window syndrome over there. He changed when he was the mayor. He changed that right around because minor crime leads to major crime. Yep. Federal police are very proactive. We're not. Victoria Police isn't. They're reactive. Yeah. The crime happens and then we go in and, and do our job. Well, we want to stop having victims of crime because it impacts on them. Mm. 
So we'll, we'll always have crime. And, and you say to people, you know what? Crime is a multi-billion dollar business. And yep. you think about it. All the people are sta- they're employed because of crime in the court system, the jail system. Mm. It is significant. Mm. Let's say in Utopia, we don't have crime anymore. Imagine the amount of people out of work. Yeah. So, mm. you know, that's we need to look at that and yeah. we'll never eradicate, but we need to come up with smarter ways. People in say, and especially in your organisation, uh, James is, um, you know, with hard cuddles of, of what you do, uh, try and get that wedge in between the receivist and that type of thing, and yeah. put them on the on the on the track. And that was one of my roles of going, and still do to this day. I still go to schools, mm. talk about leadership, decision making, yeah. uh, and involvement in people with the bank guys, because it'll always be the riffraff. <laughs> you know, I did a talk a couple of weeks ago at Damascus College in in Ballarat. Yeah, what a what a very impressive college that is. Really, it really blew me out of the water. And uh, you went in there. I tell you what, I walked in there and uh, I did that for the Terry Floyd Foundation because I'm heavily involved with Terry Floyd, who went missing 40 years ago at the Evoca Mine. It was abducted and <laughs> allegedly killed. Uh, and now I'm supporting Daryl Floyd. He's got this foundation and giving grants to schools and that type of thing. So part of his fundraising, he gets from schools, and then payback is I go and speak at these schools. Yeah, um, but then to talk, I talked about sixty or seventy kids from year nines right up to twelves, and you could see. But every audience you speak to, and you would have seen it with your experience. You guys have been around the block a lot more times. Is you, you can pick it the audience members yeah. that are smart asses. Yeah, mm-hmm. you can say, you know what? Tell tell us, Charlie, how you pick them. Oh, it's just their body language. Yeah, you know, yeah. either you know they're they're really stooped down on on the uh, on the chair. They they've got the hands crossed, and when you say certain things about giving a story, you see one nudge the other one. You know, you see straight, and just from their facial expression, you say, you know what, you don't say it to the group. And I go in there, and and I my sobering comment to them is, is I start off with statistically in this group there's going to be a small percentage that are going to go to jail. That's just a fact. Mm. Either you want to be part of that and then showing these kids about the ripple effect their decisions have on their parents, on their sporting group, on their friends, Mm. on their family. It's major. And that's the implant you want to have at that level. But again, Victoria Police are their own worst enemies – Christine Nixon came in, she stopped the school's involvement program. She stopped police going to schools and interacting with the kids. There's your first breakdown. It's a big Big mistake. Now we're starting to claw that back as best we can. We used to have school camps. We used to have blue light discos. I'm told just recently blue light discos look like coming back in. (laughs) And what really irks me is... And it's a breakdown at the academy and all this stuff. And the police youth clubs as well. That is another grouse thing. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. You know, the the kids coming up, they see a police from afar. What they either see on TV, I I often, when I go into the city, I like the people watch. I sit in the Burke Street Mall while the chief of staff goes and uh, does her shopping. (laughs) So (laughs) I'm, I'm sitting there and the times that I've done it, I have never seen a uniformed police officer walking the streets of Melbourne. Yeah. The most, densula, the most densely populated square kilometre on the face of this state, you will never see 
a uniformed police officer unless they're going out to get something to eat. That's interesting, um, Charlie, because Dad said the one thing he noticed about New York when he went there is he said there were just these monster coppers walking, that massive African American dudes yeah. just walking the street. They're so highly visible, and and that was my that was my experience having gone to New York, and every second street corner was police officers. That visible police presence, and even when I went to Europe, we went to Italy some years ago. And you sort of sit back and you take uh, you take check on stuff. You look around, and as a police officer, you do look around and see how they do it. Now, here we walked to the Spanish Steps in Italy, and then to the uh, uh, Trevi Fountain. We're coming back to our motel room about ten eleven o'clock at night, and there's police everywhere. Now, I was dubious. No, a foreign country. You don't know, apart from the gypsies and these other forces going about the street. But I felt safe. Because I was seeing a police group at every corner. And the difference there is they had uh, local police, which are basically council police. Yep. They had the state police and the Cabernet. Yep. So there's a plethora. Now, whether we need to start thinking outside the square in, in targeting because the police are currently failing in what they can achieve because of sheer numbers. Why can't we push it back to the councils? They've got bylaw officers. And still, they have their own, one of a better word, mini police forces in different councils. Yeah, they do. Yeah, they got the pine laws, so they can deal with underage drinking. They can deal with the kids buying the smokes and the and the vapes and all this minor crime at yep. that level. Um, and then you know they looked at it years ago about having security companies responding to burglaries, for example. Yeah, they'll they actually attend a scene. They'll be trained up. They might even be trained up to at least take fingerprints and the likes. Uh, and But there's a response that the community are then getting. Someone physically coming to their home and caring about them and showing them empathy and saying, yeah, we do care about this. This is why we're here. Mm. But what the happened there was the, gov- the Victoria Police years ago knocked that back because they feared they were, the government would say, well, hang on, you've now got these security companies doing burglaries, mm. which you're no longer doing, so we're going to reduce your budget because you're no okay. longer doing that as a core investigation. The two major issues that a government say to a government body, especially Victoria Police, and significantly Victoria Police, is here's your $3 billion, but what we want in return, what we, the government, want in return from you is reduce the road, t- road toll, and the road toll's going north at the moment. Continues to do it. Reduce crime, crime's going north. We're not the Victoria Police is not delivering to the government what their core issues are mm. for various reasons, mm. and you will not get the chief commissioner, deputy commissioners, assistant commissioners. I'm very big in looking at their annual report every year, and the last one I looked at, their police command, our police command here was 49 people in police command, 49 from the chief commissioner down. Budget and payment, 12 million dollars. And they've even got Sir Angus Houston is one of the independent on the on the police command uh, executive. Yep. To me, having that number is indicative of insecurity. Oh, what do you think, James? Oh, what do you think, Dave? What do you think? What do you think? Compare that to New South Wales, which we're comparable the same. They've got twenty one people in, in executive command. Too top heavy. Mm. Too top heavy. It's police from the top down instead of the bottom up. Yep. And they're not getting that service to become more corporate. 
Then you look at it and say from the Chief Commissioner down to, I think it's Commander, they're on government contracts, five-year government contracts. Yep. So do you think for one minute that those on government contract are going to criticise their master, being the state government? Of course they're not. They're going to say, oh, we don't agree with reducing the uh, age of criminality from 10 to 12 currently and then they're up to 14. We don't agree with that. We don't agree with you decriminalising drunk in a public place. You've heard nothing from them because they're subservient to the government because if they start arcing up and there was a, a particular person in the state government recently who was in integrity, he questioned the government, surprise, surprise, we're not renew, renewing your contract. Yeah. So that's the fear. So we're not getting that. And it's become very politicised because you're not even getting the police union banging the drum as they had in the past of saying, we've got the Frankston Police Station. Their strength on the roster is, I'm picking a number out of the sky, 80 people. Operationally, how many bums in the seats we've got at Frankston? I'm picking a number out of the sky, uh, 40 how does that work? Because they've been seconded to the Viper Task Force, these other task forces. There is no detective tree out there. There is no constable tree out there or sergeant tree. Mm. They've got to come from somewhere, so they rape and pillage other suburban stations who've got their own problems mm. of trying to control crime. And when they can't respond to the local community, local community gets frustrated. I did a session on uh, yesterday on, on AW on vigilantes. In New South Wales, in Queensland, there's a major issue with vigilantes up there, and we have them here. You look at uh, Paul Vrugona, the fruiter that was uh, shot dead by these bikies on the freeway. That was a mistake. That was a mistake. Yeah. Jane Thurgood Dove. Yep. In Essendon, a mistake. And it goes on, these drive-by shootings, and they're shooting and killing different uh, wrong people. The justice system's there for a reason. We as investigators, what we do, and we we don't profess innocence or guilt, we allege innocence or guilt because if they're innocent, we say, okay, we'll put a report in and we won't charge them. We've got that ability to do that. But we are the collectors of the facts. We collect the facts, we give it to the court of uh, the justice system, and they are the ones that determine innocence or guilt. That's why it is alleged you did a certain thing because everyone's presumed innocent till proven otherwise. The only body that proves innocence or guilt legally, is the court. Yeah. No one else. It's the jury or the judge if they plead guilty. But you're in a situation as the collector of the facts, when I touch someone on the shoulder and say, you are under arrest for murder, I know the impact that's going to have, A, on this individual, A, on his family and friends, A, on where he works, because that's what the media then calls upon. Oh, so-and-so's been charged with so-and-so. That, I know there's an impact. That's the, the burden that we carry as police officers and making an arrest. We put yeah. ourselves out there all the time. So I'm going to be pretty damn confident that I've got the evidence. And that evidence is, I believe on reasonable grounds that you've committed this offence. I allege you've done a particular crime. It's then up to the courts to determine whether I'm right or wrong. But I've got enough evidence there to give me enough confidence to take a person's liberty away from them. Three most important, significant things a person has in their life, their life, their liberty, and their reputation. Three most significant things. You lose one of those, you're in big problems. Mm. 
So that's what you don't want. More so your reputation, trying to win back a reputation that you've got. And this is the, what I message I give to the kids and that type of thing. It's mm. the decisions you make that lead to that. Yeah. So there's a yeah. lot of issues that impact on it. And you look back now and, uh, as I say, look, I'd, I'd be happy uh, to, uh, you know, you put the gauntlet out and say, look, I'm happy to um, do it as a consultant, a non, non-charging consultant, and look at your cold cases. Yeah, you're still doing those, I, aren't I'm you? happy. Uh, well, but that's not happening. I, I do it. Personally, when I, like the Cherry Floyd Foundation, yep. or families come to me and say, Charlie, my daughter committed suicide, but it's not suicide. People won't accept that. It was a murder, murder because the uniform branch are doing the investigation. They're not trained investigators. No criticism on them, but it falls in their lap. They leave holes in it. The holes then create doubt in the family's mind and say, well, what about this, this, this and that? So you review it for them. You know, we could do as retirees. They can say, well, okay, we'll do missing persons investigations. Give us the autonomy to do that, to check bank records, tax records and that type of thing. And I can say to you as a sworn detective and say, look, Dave, uh, we've found these 25 missing persons we've found. We know where they are. But these five, they're a little bit on the nose. Over to you. They then take that warrants out or do further investigations. Yep. But that's not happening. Yep. They've got to start thinking outside the square, Yeah, you know, uh, of how they're going to combat crime. And the other impact you then have, which becomes a false figure, is people get frustrated by the fact of no police attendance in doing a burglary or whatever. You know, I had a few callers a couple of weeks ago on the radio station. They said, oh, yeah, we rang the police to report that and I had a, a bike that wasn't ours, had this, or can you bring it into the police station? I said, well, what? Can't you come out and, and collect it? I've got a business to run. That's your core group is to respond to the concerns that didn't happen. So, And then you're ringing up a call centre to report crime, your burglary, your theft. This is the biggest thing that happens in people's lives and they're not getting a response from Victoria Police generally. Mm. So therefore, you know, you get another crime committed, you say, you know what, bugger it. I'm not reporting it. And not reporting it creates a situation in Victoria Police and say, oh, crime's gone down. It hasn't gone down. The fact is people aren't reporting it because they're frustrated not getting the service. Yeah. And they're, not frustra- they're frustrated not getting the service and become vigilantes in themselves. Think back now, how many times have you read about, the, and you didn't see it years ago, people doing citizen's arrests? Yeah. People are becoming more proactive in that regard, holding a person down mm. until the police get there. Yeah. Because they're sick and tired of the crime that's going on about them. Absolutely 100% lawful. Mm. 100% lawful about self-defence. Yeah. That sits in there. But it's proportionate. You can defend yourself, but it's got to be proportionate. Once you overstep that mark in doing a citizen's arrest, you've arrested this person, you're holding the person down, and you start sinking a slipper in, you've exceeded that. Yeah. And you then become an offender. And you'll be charged with it. Self-defence. We've had people doing the right thing, member of the community, sees a person committing a burglary or whatever. He might attack him with a baseball bat and kills them. Yeah, but I'm just stopping a crime. You've exceeded your authority and you'll be charged with manslaughter. Mm. That's the difference. People often ask you, well, if someone breaks in the house, I'm going to do this. Well, you can. Yeah. You can defend yourself, but it's got to be proportionate. Yeah. Do not put yourself in that realm. So it becomes so complicated um, and this is the complexity where we've gone. When I joined the police force, we had little 32 pistols in our pocket. We weren't allowed to show firearms. We had a, a little rubber baton in our pocket. We weren't allowed to show the batons. All we could exhibit was our um, handcuffs. 
look where we are today. Yeah, 20, 15 kilos or something. Yeah, the coppers they got OC, <coughs> pardon me, OC spray, the the Glocks, the Serenity Shot Glocks. Tasers. Tasers. Uh, the the metal S buttons. Yeah. And it goes on. Zip Plus their, ties, their, yeah. their vests, their radio. Yeah, you know, and there's a lot of injuries from all this equipment. Yeah, mm. imagine having all that gear in 40 degree heat. Yeah, you know, you've still got to respond. It's no like the work sites. Oh, 35 degrees, mate. Let's walk off. It doesn't happen. <laughs> so look, there's a lot to be said of 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 the thin blue line mm. doing the best that they can. And you know, it is not the criticism should not be directed at the frontline police officers. Yeah, um, I got a few things. Have you got a question before I? I'm just um, throwing away. <laughs> Don't hear the story. I'm just um, Charlie. I got. I, have you got a question? No, Dad? I'm all right. I'm all right for now. Um, what I was going to say, Charlie. Seventeen years in homicide. You've seen some of the most horrendous things, and even <clears> like yeah. Um, how do you manage that? How did you manage that? Like well, so, you, seeing you, that stuff on a regular basis. You manage it through. Uh, sheer consistency of work that comes in. Unlike the movies, the people are so orientated what they see on TV. Yeah. One example is my team, one particular year, had 14 homicides on my plate. So you're dealing with 14 victims' families, you're dealing with 14 offenders' families, you're dealing with a court process. Mm. You don't have time to think because... By the time you do one job, you're processing that, you've got these other jobs on the back burner while you're doing the current job you've just got... And you're thinking about strategies. How am I going to get the information? We work by the rules, crooks don't. And if we don't do it properly from the get-go, we've got the situation we might lose the case at a trial. You go to a crime scene, you're in defence mode all the time. Think of it like a defence barrister. Where's my Achilles heel here? Where's my kink in the armour that a defence barrister could tell a jury, well, there's a reasonable doubt, you've got to acquit. So you then do all, the, all these things that you consider. So you go home, you go to a crime scene, there is no emotional attachment to the deceased person. You, ha- you can switch it off like that. Oh, you can. You can because you then become a, a liability to yourself and the team. Yeah. If you then start saying, oh, you know, that could have been my daughter, that could have been my son, that could have been my wife, you then have the emotions taking over uh, your thought processes yeah. about investigating it. And this is what you would then instill as a leader back to your team. And that was the importance of us being the significant team leaders that we were then. There was that major flow-on effect that command didn't really see or appreciate. So that's a flow-on effect. So you are supporting your team members. It's like that we, prior to me leaving, we then, a couple of jobs that I did in my team, we start looking at SIDS deaths, for example. So as a result of a particular job that my team did, it was brought into play that a homicide would now look at all SIDS deaths. But there was a process you had to follow. You would, we as investigators at homicide would not turn on the turn up on the doorstep of a family home that have just lost a baby. We do it on the phone. There's things we would look for to make sure because people either feign SIDS deaths and they kill their child. Yep. That's what we were covering off on. Yeah. So, but I wouldn't send one of my young detectives who's just had a baby to do a SIDS postmortem, for example. Yep. You know, you're very emotional about it. Say, no, I'm doing it. So you because because you you come hardened to it, but you don't lose that empathy. 
the respect is always there yeah. on a deceased person from the get-go, which you are overseeing because nothing happens until you get there. The body remains in situ until you get there and we escort the body back to the hospital, back to the coroner's court. We're then with it at the post-mortem and so forth and so on in dealing with the deceased family. So all these things are happening until the heat dies down. Whether you get an arrest or the trial goes a bit cold, then you fall back onto your current investigations that you've already got. You fall back on monitoring the court cases throughout the state of Victoria that your detectives are at. So there is no time, there's really no think time involved. So early in the piece, um, you know, I'd turn off and say, okay, we had nine weeks leave, I'd take three lots of three and just grab the kids out of school and go camping. Just to yeah. turn off and get away from the phone. Yeah. But you've got to be mindful and it's where I'm out in the field all the time. What I want to do is go home and stay home. Yeah. But then I've got to think about my partner. She's been home all the time. She wants to go out. <laughs> and you'll say, okay, so you've got to balance it. Yeah. Uh, but the real issue is having a supportive partner. Yeah. And yeah. because without that, you know, you're coming home. And in my day, it was alcoholism, you know, place you really hit the source. Debrief. But that's right. Yeah. But, yeah. but they made that an evil thing. You know, I used to have a little fridge under the, under the desk at Homicide. Uh, we'd put uh, we'd mark on it because we'd bring mortuary samples back from the coroner's court to take to forensic science every so often. But uh, we had a specific fridge for that at the office. We had another small fridge under there, and it was all marked on the front mortuary samples. You know, um, um, uh, do not open, blah blah blah. But that's where we had a couple of cans. Of, yeah. You know, because three or four in the morning, whilst we're brainstorming a next investigation, we'd have a sip. Yeah. And we were allowed to do that and have alcohol on the premises. Mm. Christy Nixon came in, she said, no, nah, it's areas dry. Yeah. You're no longer going to have it. We used to have a police club. We'd go there and be able to debrief with other police officers. Yeah. So what happens now is we go to a pub somewhere or we go to another licensed premises. So we're talking shop as coppers do and there's earwigs all around. Yeah. So you've taken that away of demonising, you know, alcohol in the, in the organisation and you're smart about it, and we know about drink driving, and we know all about this. Yeah. So as a team leader, you could you could monitor that and mm. say, well, no, and because you know we weren't getting charged for 0.05, we weren't doing this, we weren't doing that. We we were smart about it, mm. but we've been treated like children. Yeah. Uh, and that's where yeah that's where your your, your de releases is having and talking to yeah. the younger yeah. detectives and say, oh Charlie, I, I did this job or that job. And you then tell them the war stories from your experience, and they say, "Oh, mm. I'm thinking the same way." So yeah, I'm not odd. Yeah, I'm yeah. not alien. Even, even Charlie, even <coughs> us, like I've just negotiated with the leader of the opposition, my wife, about because yeah. we did, we need a debrief. Some of the stuff we're hearing is very dark and mm. unfathomable, which you would understand. Mm. Um, so we, and every now and again, my wife would say, "Oh, you just need to be a bit naughty and mischievous." And the truth is. When she goes, you never cause any trouble, you're not aggressive, you just need to let your hair down. So I said to her, how about this, because we all need to, we, we need it, a, yeah. a day where we can go and catch up, preferably in an area where nobody knows us, so Correct. no one's coming up. Correct. Um, and I said to her, how about once a month, once every six, six weeks, we all plan a day where we can go and sit in a beer garden, have a few beers and, yeah. l and let everything Correct. sort of go. It, yeah. It's so important. And that's where, you know, and I used to say that to my trips and say, well, because it's the old are you okay days and that type of thing, yeah. your people are coming in. And you know because of our, 
And my greatest saying was, we spent more time with our team than we did with our families. Yeah. And you know when something's off. Yeah. I had an open plan. I was with the team. I sat at the head of the table, two sergeants and me eight detectives. But you then know, because you know your people so well, you go away with them, you drink with them, you eat with them, you investigate with them in, in any country town or whatever the case may be. Yeah. You live and breathe each other. Yeah. But one of your people comes in one morning and what you've got to instill, and I instill it with a lot of organisations, don't lose sight of the fact that we all have baggage. Yep. We've got a life at home yep. and professional life. Yep. Okay, so you're managing that. So you don't know what's happening in their private lives and that baggage comes into your working life. And you should identify that as a person you work with and saying, mate, everything okay today? You're mm. a little bit off or you're a little bit snappy. What's going on? Yep. Time and place. Instead of saying that, you don't do it at the table, say, come on, let's go and have a coffee. Mm. Oh, let's go. Oh, let's have a coffee somewhere. Get off site. Mm. Mate, you're a little bit off colour. What's going on? Mm. And uh, hopefully they can have the confidence, which they do, because they know you care about them and have the empathy, given how you've then set up your team mm. and your coaches address and say, yeah, he is sincere. Yeah. Oh, look, I've had this. You know what? Take some time off. Either just... Go and buy yourself, uh, buy your wife a present or some flowers or something. Mm. Take tomorrow off or whatever the case may be. Yeah. Have a breather and we'll go that way. And then you're balancing with, oh, but I don't want to let the team down. Mm. You're not letting the team down. You're letting the team down now because you've got this issue you've got to deal with at home. Yeah. It's affecting you what happens here. And then you're going to go home and it's going to manifest itself when you go home again. You've got to sort that out and if I'll help you, whatever you want, I'll assist you where I can. I'll give you the breathing space. A, you're not letting the team down. Once that's sorted, you can come back and we're back into it. So that's where you've got to have that confidence and the closeness of a team environment and that social interaction with the partners and that type of thing. So it all pays off long it run. It does. Mm. And supporting your people. Because you know what? Bosses don't. Yeah. Bosses don't, you know, hire bosses. But that, that personal level that you've got with your own people in any organisation, mm. it's so significant. It is. T- and that's why I've always said hard cuddles will never be bigger than sort of five or six yeah. of what we do because the, the luxury of that is, and you've said that number as well with Danny or Simi or I know their families and yeah. I know exactly their upbringings yeah. and, and then they know with me too if I'm off. So yeah. 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 Or you want space or something. We can support each yeah. other. Yeah. Or you, and that's the beauty of it. It's the old, you know, a, a problem shared is a problem halved. That yeah. type of stuff. And so, yeah. you know what, because your maturity, your your, your experience, you say, well, okay, no, I've, I've dealt with that before. Mm. No, this is how I went about that situation. I'm not telling you other things to do, but give them options. Mm. Or, you know what, let's go. We're going to pull the pin now. Let's go and have a couple of beers. And My I- father-in-law <coughs> used to say, um, he would say to his employees, is this, is this a one-beer problem or a six-beer problem, <laughs> right? And he said, he would openly say, if it's more than six, this is a problem we shouldn't be drinking. Yeah, correct. <laughs> yeah. No, correct, but it's just talking. Yeah. Pay off-site. Get off-site, yeah. most importantly. Yeah. Get a neutral yeah. territory. Yeah. I don't want to go home and do that. You know what? Just me and you. Yeah. You know, and because, look, we're all macho. We're all this. We're all tough guys. <laughs> you know, we're all bulletproof. <laughs> but let's show some emotion, son. Yeah. You know, yeah. Uh, yeah. and that's where your organisation comes in so significantly. And, yeah. You know, we're all tough guys. You see your blokes in the street, you wouldn't give you a second look and say, oh, shit, and you might cross the road. Because <laughs> you're hard-looking dudes. <laughs> How do you go, Charlie, like – when you've got a perpetrator 
of a horrendous crime. Yeah. Yeah. And you can see they're mentally ill. How do you give that empathy to them or how do you keep everybody else to keep – like there's some horrendous stuff, but you can see yeah. people are sick. Yeah. Oh, yeah. It's like, you know, there's certain ways you can deal with people. Now, uh, pedophilia, for example, what an experience tells you, you don't go in there and say, you dirty bastard, you this, you that, and you become attacking. Yeah. Because what happens is they shut down. Shut down, yeah. So what you got to do is what you guys do, put your arm around them, say, look, I know he's got a, you're dealing with a few issues. I know that. This has happened. We're not going to take the time back. It's happened. Let's deal with it. Yeah. You empathise with them. You know you've got a job to do because you know you've got a victim out there that you answer to. Yeah. You've got the community to answer to. You've got Victoria Police to answer to. And you've got a job to do. It's how you then do it. But that comes from experience and the fact of... Us five, with all that experience we had in homicide, gone. That, you know, you are getting experienced members there, but not enough experienced members to deal with that. So oh, he didn't make any admissions. But how would you go about it? Because I've been in situations where I've had detectives, and you know the strengths and weaknesses of your detectives and when you can use them. Yep. You're dealing with professional people, millionaires at the top of the rung, down to the poor old homeless person or whatever the case may be. Mm. Crime has got no boundaries. Mm. It's how you then deal with it. I had a detective who couldn't bring himself down. He was talking at a person that thinks this guy's got a, a university degree and he's been a knockabout bloke. And I've been in an interview and he says, what does that word mean? You know, mate, I'll take my detective out and say, mate, you can't be talking to this guy like that. You've got to... Bring yourself down, not, it sounds bad, uh, you know, at their level mm. and speak to them at their level. But yeah. you've got to share empathy. You know that they've been, been bad and you know as an investigator you can't cross-examine them in an interview. You can't yell at them. You can't tell them a, a lie in relation to try and get a confession. When someone is mentally impaired, putting the pedophilia side, if someone's mentally impaired... What we then do is, and they can't answer a question, we'll then charge them, regardless. If we've got enough evidence to support that, you say, you know what, okay, either we get them talking to us or they're that loopy that they just cannot fathom what they've done is wrong. Yeah. We don't say, oh, well, you did no right from wrong. That's not our role. We will then charge them because we have the supportive evidence there and say, okay, it's up to the court. So they'll then go to court and claim mental impairment They'll be found uh, not guilty of mental impairment, but they'll be then sentenced to the old governor's yeah. pleasure into that type of thing. So, you know, it's a matter of how you then deal with it because it's a win-win. They feel good in themselves because either they've told you about it, oh, this guy, he he, uh, he understands my situation. I can't help myself. I can't, you know, I didn't know what I was doing. Look, I understand that. You're talking to them at this level and plus all their interviews are recorded. And we know that because we know that they, that interview will be shown to a jury. The crime scene will be shown yeah. to a jury. Mm. And you're going to be criticised, and that goes to your reputation. Yeah. And it's so, so important, more so reputation in Victoria Police, let's say when we're taking out warrants, mm. for example. If you've got a borderline warrant, then a magistrate's going to give you the warrant to enter a place by force, smash down a door and make an arrest... They do that quite seriously. A judge make, or a, a magistrate judge um, makes it say, well, I'll give this detective a warrant to do that. 
they've got to know what type of, it might be line ball to say they'll either earn and say you know what no I'm not giving you the warrant but more often than not your reputation gets you over the line and say you know what I know how Charlie operates yep. I know that other warrants that I've given him have been spot on yep, yep I'll give you that warrant yep. and it goes on that way so all this in, interaction but it comes from experience like your yeah. game mm. yeah. it's, it's, it's interesting it's interesting how you say you, you talk about like um, you got to come down to their level. You got to speak. Um, it's like their language. Of, their language. Yeah. You know? Like you know, if we go into prison, then you know we're we're talking. You know, like um, you know, how's the head miles going? And mm. and then when we go back to like team meetings, then it's all sort of therapeutic sort of language. And, yeah. yeah. Or you go to court. Or, yeah. Same difference. Yeah. You know? it's, it's interesting. Yeah. You know? It is. That's it's, how we sort of. We're the same as well, yeah. I think. Yeah. yeah. Very much because you got to make them comfortable. Yeah. You know, yeah. you go in there and then, A, you've got the appearance and say, well, this bloke's been around, you yeah. know. Yeah. You come in with your signs, the tattoos, and uh, so, yeah, okay. And then you start talking as they talk. Yeah. Mm. You know, and, do, and doing the lingo, d- doing the talk that they do, and then all of a sudden they forget, and a lot of times the yeah. crooks forget that they're talking to a detective who's going to put you away in jail for 25 years. Yeah. They'll then say, okay, mate, okay, you're stuffed up. Let's deal with it, son. Mm. And I, when yeah. you throw him a life buoy, my inch, throw him a life buoy, throw him something they can grab onto, give him a bit of think time, you know. Yeah. And th- it, that then flows on. And many a time people say, well, aren't you really scared when you're walking around the streets and this happens? And I've had it happen on public transport. Hey, Mr. Bazina. You look around and say, oh, here we go. <laughs> <laughs> is this guy a witness or is he yeah. a defender yeah. or what is he? Oh, you don't remember me, do you? I said, look, to be honest with you, no. I said, you locked me up for that murder back in, uh, you know, 20 years ago, blah, blah, blah. Oh, yeah, how's things going? Not bad, da-da-da, da-da-da. And off, off it went. Oh, good to see you. Um, or you see these other bad-looking dudes on the transporter train and I come up to you and say, you're Charlie Bazina, aren't you? Yeah. Mate, uh, I'm so-and-so. You shake their hands and all this stuff. You don't, you don't, uh, um, you know, compartmentalise them and say, well, you know, you look like you've got a bad head on you. You talk to them, you shake their hands. <laughs> but there's never a problem. You know why? Because you treat them with respect. Yeah. Regardless yeah. of what they've done then, mm. and, and that's why I've never had a problem with crooks mm. that I've locked up because A, they know they've done the wrong thing, B, they're treated with respect. You throw them a life boy and say, okay, let's deal with this problem. Yeah. Okay, and then you can work out your defence mm. later on. If you come in with no comment, you know, because people are so better educated these days, you make a decision as an investigator, do I make an arrest now or wait till I get more information and more evidence? You balance that against, well, I've still got a killer walking the streets who could probably kill again, but do I, do I go quickly and arrest the person? He's going to say no comment, he walks out the door anyway. I want to be in a position today where I've got enough evidence, he says no comment, and that's the premise I work on. Oh, thanks very much. I'm going home early. Here's a charge of murder. And I go, what the? Where'd that come from? I never said any comment. They don't know because you've got to do your homework. Yeah, you've got to build a case around them. In my day, in the seventies, you relied on the confession. Our computer was a facet typewriter with carbon paper. A lot of kids now, well, carbon paper? What's carbon <laughs> yeah, paper? Yeah. You know, you type up the record of interview, 20, 30 pages. You type the question, type in the answer. Type the question, type in the answer. Now it's all audio stuff. And now if it's not recorded in audio, you've got to then argue the point to get it admitted in evidence when it's not admitted on tape and that type of thing. Yeah. So you go through that process, but you do your homework, build a case around them and say, yep, 
He says, no comment. I've got enough to charge him. I'm confident. No comment. As your right is, here's your charge. Let's go to court. And then there's a ways of means you can deal with. I've charged a guy with murder ah, years ago and no comment interview. And this is a decision people have to make. Even though when they go to court, the, the judge cautions the jury and says, you must not take any adverse views on the fact that this person exercised their rights and saying no comment. You might, you don't, you're not allowed to say, oh, because he said no comment, he's got to be guilty. He ex- all he did was, or she, exercise their rights and saying no comment as they should. So do not take that as adverse. Mm. Um, and then ultimately uh, you go through the whole process from that point of view. And I had a particular one where he made a no comment interview. And this is the games people you got to they play with you all the time. And so this is the old watch house at Russell Street, locked him up for the murder. And then they are so late, he, he, he got through his lawyer, oh, Dave wants to talk to you. Well, what, he wants to tell you what really happened or what happened on that day. He's happy to now answer your questions. Yeah. I'm not coming out to talk to you because it becomes self-serving. And you know that. That comes from your experience that you're going to get set up. And you then say, you know what? You've got the right to then tell the court instead of telling me. So he's setting up his defence yep. on a second or third interview. No, I've interviewed you. You exercise right to say no comment. I'm not going to re-interview you, but you've got the right. You're not going to be disbarred from me. You've got the right to tell the court, but they don't want to do that because they've got to jump the witness box. Yeah. They don't want to do that and be cross-examined. They want to get their evidence through me in my record of interview to the court. So that's the tactics and strategies defence mm. lawyers play, which you've got to be mindful of, and then you balance it and say, well, no, you've got the right to do it. And then nine times out of ten, oh, okay, and that won't come out unless their lawyer does it in their defence when they call witnesses, etc. So strategies from both mm. sides all the Re- time. In retrospect, who's some of the more intelligent crooks you've met, Charlie? Well, you know, I hate to keep uh, uh, banging on it, but Denya. Denya's cunning mm. and, and calculating. Um, but significantly, you know, you, you try and think back, uh, having not been in the armed robbery squad, there's certainly a, a few armed robbers that were very cunning and, and calculating. I can't think of this guy's name. He defended himself at a trial. Hugo Rich. Oh, yeah, yeah. he's infamous. Yeah, yeah very, very smart, yeah. Uh, very cunning. Uh, still in custody. And would take take over in the courtroom. Very much. I've heard an interview, yeah. Yeah, very uh, much. Sorry, I heard him at yeah. court. But yeah. there's an armed robber there, and what's his name? Uh, Mad Dogs, Russell Cox. I, he was, uh, yeah. Again, they will famous. take it on. And again, uh, he was on the run for so many years and that type of thing. He's now out. Had an alias for his dog, didn't yeah. he? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And, and, but he's now you know, living in the community. Yeah, uh, quiet life. Exactly. And yeah. uh, But... You know, they were the more cunning ones because they're planning armed robberies and that type of stuff. Often murders are reactive. Okay. Uh, but then it become more, with the underworld killings, they become not so much reactive. They would then plan their murders. Mm. Uh, but often they're not that bugger it up. And then, you know, we were catching the dummies. No two ways about it. But you do get the cunning ones that are planning it. But, look, uh, you never underestimate the people you're dealing with. Yeah. You know, they may want to come across as being dumb and you say, no, nah, you know, you know exactly what's going on. You know, you, mm. there's some planning involved. You look at the uh, the bookie robbery. Yep. 
the planning that went into that is just phenomenal. They see, yeah, yeah, everyone you know, see, even the police yeah. say that was the next level. Yeah, even uh, training and everything. Yeah, uh, Phil Dunn. Phil Dunn was involved in that, and then he he uh, he tells a story and openly that uh, he spoke to a particular crook, and it's right or wrongly that they actually like their movies they they stayed in the room or left the money in the building and they come back a couple of days later under the guise of maintenance people and took the money out and the nose and that's things like cold, that that's cold you've got to be cold cold and calculating yeah. you know and then you know the Dennis Allens of the world and that type of thing they would play the system Dennis Allen uh, and uh, as we spoke earlier about uh, Skull Murphy passing yeah they had a different era again but the likes of Dennis Allen would be an informer while he then proceeded in committing the crimes and that type of stuff. So he'd be playing both sides, yeah. give it, talking to the coppers, committing the, the other murders and armed robberies and drugs and whatever. But I heard a story about him, Charlie Den- um, Dennis Allen would uh, inform on murders that he'd committed himself mm. and try direct to direct police. Into yeah, deflect. Diff- yeah. Yeah. But I heard he was good with horse racing tips as well. Oh, was he? This, the detective said, yeah. Yeah, it's the same as uh, the monster, Graham Kinneborough. Yep. You know, he had a lot of jockeys on his speed dial yep. and that type of stuff. Yeah. And, uh, you know, had, uh, when I was working on uh, the Alphonse Cantitano case and uh, having dealt with the monster then, yep. uh, you know, a, a likeable crook. Yeah. Old, old safe breaker. Yeah. Painter and docker, SP bookie and that type of stuff. Yeah. Not violent. Yeah. Uh, but you had that rapport, and the same with my interaction with Mick Gatto. Yep. You know, I've got a lot of time for Mick. Yep. You know, I've, I've interviewed Mick over a number of issues over yep. the years, but if I saw Mick in the street, I'd sit down with him, have a coffee, not a problem at all. Yep. You know, and people might say, okay, there's a perception. Yeah. Oh, because of my profile, what's, what's Charlie doing talking to him? He must be corrupt. Well, they don't understand the relationship you then have, the professional relationship you then have with these crooks. Yeah. You know, uh, and uh, it goes on from there because one day they might want to talk to somebody and you put yourself out there. Different era. I went through a different era. Yeah. A new era of today um, in any walks of life is so, so different than millenniums, mm. this type of stuff, and I want to go from yeah. there. One thing I wanted yeah. to ask you straight from the horse's mouth, especially with the cold cases, have you ever worked with psychics and mediums and what's your take on the whole the situation is I did a particular case uh, of a, um, a investigation and worked quite closely with the family and I'm happy to, to take anything. I will go where the intelligence takes me, intelligence by uh, information. Now, I was running this particular investigation and I had psychics and these people ring me up. I said, no problem. I don't write them off. I said, come into the office and you convince me of your powers. Oh, Charlie, I've seen trucks disappear off the horizon. I've done this. I've done that. I've done it. I understand that. But I, as a team leader investigator, have to balance uh, a costing of what's going to do. Oh, I can see something green. Uh, There's a lot of sand around. Uh, I reckon it's this location. Well, I can't then hire a backhoe get personnel to start digging up this location, oh, nothing there and nothing there. I need to be convinced and I would then call their gauntlet. Happy to talk to them because you might think they're feigning it. They might have information. That might be the offender. So you never turn off on that. Mm. It's like the old CFA guy that writes a fire because he wants to fight a fire. That's right. That type of stuff. So you might have a psyche saying, oh, I'll just see how I go. That might be part of their, 
their their persona to say, well, okay, I help solve my own case of that type of stuff. Mm. So you listen to them. You get all the information, and all the years I've been an investigator, which is uh, twenty five years plus, not one, not one has answered my challenge to come up and convince me. You convince me of your powers, and I'll then start looking at it. <coughs> um, one particular case, we were looking for uh, a, a body that was buried. It was uh, it was a like uh, someone rang up and said, "Oh, I think it's buried in this particular backyard." Why do you say that? Oh, because the ground over a period of time has just now subsided. Mm. Okay, there's something to support the information mm-hmm. that gave me enough impetus to say, you know what? That's the right location. It's in the vicinity where the person that's been missing. We never found the body, and now we've got a ground that in this particular premises, and the ground has subsided. That's enough for me. Mm. So I got a backhoe in. We then followed on, and it was a, um, a collapsed um, uh, sewer. Yeah. But there was something more to it than just a word of mouth mm. that yeah. I expended that money because I'm running around doing different things. Another uh, case I did was a missing person who never found the body. Uh, this millionaire murdered his wife uh, in South Yarra, and uh, he was a developer. So mm. we got the ground penetrating radar. Instead of digging up the concrete, he just recently poured some concrete in his backyard. Ground penetrating, looked at that, satisfied yourself. So they're the things. Okay, you look at the most obvious, but you never discount any information that comes in. You've got to balance it. You've got to assess it and make a decision upon it. Um, and then you say, you know what, this bloke's full of tish. Uh, move on. Convince me otherwise. Have you had any set-up crime scenes that have thrown you off track? Uh, not really, because at the end of the day, especially dealing with, and I can only, uh, you know, I've had nothing leading up to apart from homicides. So you go to the homicide and you're very mindful of, you go in there with such an open mind uh, and the experience you had. And you, a bigger pun, you just reminded me, yep, I've had two or three that have killed someone and tried to make it look like a burglary gone wrong. So you go in there and you know from your sheer experience, one particular case which remains unsolved to this day, and it's the unsolved, inverted commas, is is a, a bad reflection because it might be unsolved because we haven't got a conviction, but we know who the offender is. Mm. We just can't reach the height of beyond reasonable doubt. Yeah. Mm. So this particular case, house, suburban house, you walk in, wife was away with the children that evening. You go in, as a big area, and this guy um, is, is lying dead in a big family room. He's got a pillow over his head. Take the pillow off and his throat's been cut very badly. You go to another room. There's blood staining on the drawers where the drawers have been pulled out. And you say, okay. His sheer experience says, you do the post-mortem. He was bludgeoned to death. He, hit, he was dead before he hit the ground, being hit on the back of the head with a heavy blunt object. Then he had his throat cut. Straight away that tells you it's an overkill. Yeah. Is, is it a burglary gone wrong? You look at the back door, the back door had been jimmied, but the back door was where he was would have been looking at, but he's been attacked from behind. The crime scene tells you a story, so the person who killed him was invited into the house. The burglary then takes place after the killing because we've got bloodstains on the drawer. The drawers are pulled out and turned upside down. And all the burglaries I've investigated as a general detective, that comes from experience, is say, 
no burglar in their right mind is going to kill someone, then do a burglary. The drawers have been turned upside down. Have they been rifled? No, they haven't gone through. Oh, these dumb coppers will walk in and say, oh, it was a burglar <laughs> that uh, must have come in and done that. Long story short, you then start doing the investigation. So that's a possibility of saying, you know what, the offender knew the deceased and vice versa. And the question you always ask yourself, why would someone want to kill this person? At every crime scene, you start looking at families, social, workmates, whatever the case may be. Everyone becomes a person of interest. Yeah. Until you can eliminate them. Lo and behold, the wife finds the deceased, finds her husband bludgeoned to death, <laughs> go next door. Luck for us, she left a handbag on the front veranda. Goes through the handbag, there's a letter from a divorce lawyer in her name but addressed to a different address. Different address is a girlfriend. Long story short, she wanted a divorce, he didn't. They were the Greek community. Um, we then find out who the lover is. We go to the netball club. Yeah, yeah, this girl is in cahoots with this guy. We start looking at him. He's not alibi. He gets an alibi from an ex-girl. And it goes on and on. So then it's a burglary. Another one was a guy that, again, wanted a divorce. Go there. Here's a, the wife's been bludgeoned to death in a house. Again, another overkill. Husband comes home, finds that, rings the police and does everything in that regard. Then we start looking at it a lot closer. He wanted a divorce. No, she wanted a divorce. He didn't. He was suffering under chronic fatigue syndrome. The mistake he made, he was over-alibied. I went there, 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 there. I was here, I knew all that type of stuff, but it was enough to squeeze in half an hour to wait for her to come home and kill her and then go and finish his alibi, then come back. These things, the crime scene tells you a story, the body then tells you a story, and you get all these facts put together. When you start interviewing people, and that's why when you do media interviews, it's so important there, you don't let everything out. Mm. One thing you would never say in an interview, oh, this person was shot four times to the front and twice to the back, or he was stabbed 15 times, or his head was nearly severed, or that top. You don't give specifics. Because you do get people who want to admit to these crimes and say, you know what, well, tell me about it. You know who the, who's, if you tell you right, because only the offender knows and you know. Mm. And they then get tell, start giving you a story and you say, you know what, don't waste my time. You can quite confidently write them off. For, and you get these people out there. So, yeah, people do set up crimes, but from sheer experience tells you this something's not quite right here and then you can read, read through it. And you know that's why you've got to be a seasoned investigator doing, when I was at Footscray's detectives, I was a, an investigator arsons, rapes, uh, um, uh, assaults, burglaries. Because all of these get involved that lead up to homicides. Because you've had that experience investigating these different crimes, you've investigated umpteen burglaries, and you know a burglar wouldn't do that. Straight away you say, something's not right here, uh, or if it's an overkill. Then you start looking closer. Oh, well, then you find out oh, they wanted a divorce, the marriage was on the rocks, start looking at a motive. Motive is not a point of proof, but it gives you a direction. Yeah, until you can eliminate it. Mm. And you move on, keeping an open mind. Uh, and that's the challenges. And that's why you can deflect and defer because your brain is working at the strategies all the time. You're not thinking about how the deceased must have suffered, how this and that gotcha. could have been someone yeah. I know. So you are distracted all the time. You don't have that think time. 
And when you are at home and you've got the time off or the leave, you're family focused. So. Did you? I've got so many questions. Yeah. We might have to do a two thing. Um, <laughs> what I was going to say. So, uh, do you ever? Uh, no. Do you ever play games with crooks? Like, do you have to play and play games with them, and they're trying to outsmart you? Um, look, you don't play games because ultimately, as a detective, when you go to detective training school, there's two words that you've got to uh, that you abide by: fairness and frankness. Mm. You cannot go to a crook and say, look, uh, James, we know you did the the burglary because we found your fingerprints there. And you may not have any fingerprints. You can't tell a lie to an offender mm. and play games. And, and then say, you'll say, oh, God, I thought I was wearing gloves. I must have bloody forgotten there. And based on that lie, he makes a true confession yeah. and says, oh, okay, you got me. Oh, well, if he's got me prints there, I might as well admit it. Yeah. He makes full admissions. But you know full well, because you're thinking like a defence barrister of what's going to happen in court and comes from experience. The first question I'm going to get when I uh, get in that witness box is because they get the brief of evidence, they get all the evidence that's, that's alleged against them at a hand-up brief, they're flicking through it and say, well, I see in the interview that um, you said to my client, that you found his fingerprints. I, I can't find any report on a brief yeah. from mm. a fingerprint expert. Where's that? Oh, look, I just thought I'd use a bit of psychology on him and uh, tell him that I did when I actually didn't. Yeah. I know what'll happen then is the defence barrister will say to the judge, I need this part of the interview struck out. I want all the interviews struck out because it's based on a, false, a, a, a falsehood that Mr. Bazzina gave my client. Misled the client. And and the judge, 100%, will say, that interview is no longer admissible mm. because it's admissions. He knows or she knows that it's admissions, true admissions, but it's based on a falsehood that I gave him, that mm. person. Not paying, we pay by the rules, crooks don't. The judge will not allow that evidence in. What else have you got, Mr. Prosecutor? Oh, nothing, Your Honour. We are relying on the confession of the interview. Okay. You're, in, you're free to walk out the door. Yeah. Then, with us dealing with the with the primary issue of of homicides, I don't want to be in a position to explain to a deceased family or a victim's family and say, "Geez, why, why was he uh, acquitted?" Oh, look, I took a bit of a shortcut, uh, and I did this and did that, and based on that, he got acquitted. Mm. I never want to be in that situation, mm. and unfortunately, you've got to do everything by the book. Mm. So no playing games. Yep. You've got to be factual. No yep. keeping back a secret witness and say, you know what, I won't tell him about that. I'll just bring this witness in at the trial. You'd be absolutely um, flogged by a judge and anyone else by keeping the evidence away only yep. to surprise a person at the trial. It doesn't work that way. Your whole case is based on what you then put to the offender and they've got to answer. That's the fairness and frankness that you've got to deal with. A lot of times that you might say, okay, if I do that, I'm not going to get a solve in this case. Well, mm. so be it. Mm. You just box it up, put it on the shelf and move to the next job. I, I, I would like to know is what influenced you to become a policeman or, you know, what, what maybe you're yeah, you like well, um, Hitchcock, um, <laughs> what's a Hitchcock novels and... No, no, well, <laughs> it was more, you know, my day and I, I know what I wanted to be. Matlock. Join the police force exactly of uh, because of the police shows that were happening at the time when I was a kid, yeah. Division Four homicide. Uh, but I didn't say at that level. 
you know what, I want to be a homicide investigator. I love the variety of mm. police work that I saw on the TV. Yeah. Mm. Matlock Police, um, Division 4, and that type of stuff. <laughs> and I thought, well, yeah, and I thought, well, it was more the Australian shows than oh. the American ones yeah. um, because I could relate to them. I could see the Victoria police members in uniform on TV. Yeah. So there was a direct relationship. Wow. And I said, well, you know, I could become – initially I thought about becoming a cabinet maker because I love working with my hands and doing things and maintenance and that type of thing. And I said, well, so I'm going to go to a factory every day Make this box, then do this. Next day, back to the, And what I saw on TV is the variety mm-hmm. of the, what was that one day they're chasing a car, they're doing this investigation, going to a house, interaction with people, which attracted me. And then uh, I, was, I was focused. So then in my day, we did a, what we do a commercial course. I went to um, level uh, Form 4, which I think was uh, year 11 at that stage, year 9 in the tech school. Um, and I applied for the police force because I can then, as a 16, 17-year-old, as a police cadet, we no longer had them. And and as stringent, and things, how things have changed. So I went there in, when I was in Form 4 and I failed the eyesight test for whatever reason. But that's the stringent it was. So I went back and I did a commercial course and I said, you know what, I'll go back, not that I want to be a, an office worker, but I knew from what programs I'd seen that police are involved with typing yeah. and doing interviews. So I went there and part of the commercial course was typewriting <clears throat> of setting that up. So I finished, uh, got my leaving certificate, uh, Form 5, left, reapplied, no problems at all, passed the eyesight test. I was brought in as a 17-year-old as a police cadet. Went, went go out to different police stations, working then, seeing how things were operating. And then uh, I was then at 17 and a half, we were then allowed to go to the police academy and we were the first squad that actually did the full course at Glen Waverley at yep. that stage. Wow. We, we did part of it at St Kilda Road as a police cadet and we were actually the first team. We just had our 50th anniversary uh, being the first squad through the police academy, having done the full course. Um, and then because uh, uh, you, you can't be uh, a police officer until you're 18, so you're sworn in and I graduated in 1973, April 73. When I turned, I'd been 18. Um, and uh, away we went from there. And uh, wow. loved every minute of it. Like I said at the start of the uh, discussion, that, uh, you know what, never look back. But where I ended up, as I said, I never said, oh, I want to be a homicide investigator. A lot of people, you know, want to go to different sections of the police force. I just took things as they come. I always wrapped, hey, I'm a police officer. Again, different different times, different era. Had the respect, you could walk in. I'd be walking from my home to the railway station in my police cadet uniform with my hat on and I'm proud as punch, but try and do that these days. You know, mm-hmm. walking to a train station. It doesn't happen. Mm-hmm. People put on a carding and all that type of stuff. So you, you go through that whole process and then, okay, went to Footscray. Uh, no, when this is go back again, graduated from the academy and we lived in barracks. We're such a disciplined organisation. I graduated. Even though I lived 20 minutes from the CBD, I had to live in barracks at Russell Street. Wow. So you're living in barracks. We had barracks at Russell Street Police Headquarters. You'd be, you'd be, you'd, like the army, you'd be inspected. You'd better be inspected. You'd, Would you do bid rolls? Yeah, yeah you'd yeah. do all that. <laughs> and then you'd, you'd be on parade downstairs. You'd parade, produce your appointments. You'd pull out your baton and handcuffs, produce your appointments in your notebook. 
And then I remember the first one of the first shifts I did was uh, foot patrol. This is when the C- CBD in Melbourne would shut down. We don't have the CBD of today. And people yeah. would be hard to fathom. In those days, <clears throat> in uh, 73, well. Melbourne was shut down. No, nothing opened at all. We had six o'clock closing. Um, so one of my first jobs was night shift. Seven days, well, my first job was you start you're after parade at Russell Street, you get a detail sheet. My foot patrol was from in Russell Street, from Flinders Street to Victoria Parade. On the hour, I had to be at Victoria Parade and Russell Street. On the half hour, I had to be at Flinders Street and Russell Street for the full eight hours. Apart from one lunch break, you'd go into a d- dinner break because the sergeant would know, well, okay, my Russell Street foot patrol person will be at Russell Street and, and Flinders Street on the half hour. I'll wait for him there. And in between, you're shaking hands with locks checking things, and, and, you know, you wouldn't see anybody. The other shift was doing night shift, walking around Parliament House, and you had points you had to be on at every quarter of an hour because wow. the sergeant would know where you are. It doesn't happen anymore. Mm. Now the PSOs do it. What, what about ironing? You had to get the full oh, yes. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Well, that's where my, my wife and I, she just said, you know what, you iron yourself because I'd say I'm very particular, as uh, James said earlier, about appearances. Um, and w- one of my thing was on the sleeve that I wanted one one crease. And I was, and I <laughs> down the trousers as well. Yeah, and I used to say, I want to cut myself on that crease, yep. my dear. But she would, and I'd say, you bloody put tram tracks on me bloody sleeve again. <laughs> <laughs> well, do it yourself then. Okay, all right. So I said, I'm here. And to this very day, she will not, I'll, I'll iron my own shirts. What <laughs> um, I was going to say, so just for the record, um, even when it was real hot with Piranha and all that, and that's um, the time that I, I was certainly active as a criminal. I remember you doing interviews and stuff, or maybe even in relation to other things, but that's when I noticed you were well-dressed, you spoke well on the thing. So years after I turned it around, I said to the old man, Dad, I'd love to go and hear him speak. So we came to Glen Huntley Road that night and I just left you a card and um, you followed up the next day, Charlie, much to my um, – um, I was really happy about it and we met up and had coffee and mm. you've been mentoring me uh, ever since and you've been a wealth of uh, knowledge and a great sounding board as well. Um, and you've actually helped me a lot with um, a couple of clients in particular and put us in touch with um, – Bernie, the attorney, again, after I hadn't spoken to him for a few years, but Bernie, I was talking to Bernie the other day, who will be on the podcast probably next. He said um, that we talked about the Russell Street bombing and he said it was camping gear that probably saved you from Mm. getting blown up. You went to get camping gear. It was a five-minute break. Uh, I was In those days, I was uh, internal investigations in running a surveillance undercover unit. And pretty haphazard stuff in those days. I just we just get bodgy number plates put on the car, and uh, I was an afternoon shift, so I left home at lunchtime. I was, we were working out of the Savoy Plaza in those days, uh, unmarked cars. So I was in civvies, and I parked in Russell Street, and I parked about a metre back from this Brown Commodore, where coppers normally park their cars. So this cheeky bastard here parking here, and I walked past, had a look in the back seat. There was a brown briefcase. Thought nothing more of it. I virtually then ran down to uh, down uh, Russell Street to Lonsdale Street to Sammy Bears. There was a uh, camping shop there. As I got there, 
it blew up, this massive explosion. I looked behind. We didn't know what had happened. I thought a petrol tank was going up or something because we're so protected from, from any such things. It's a terrorist Terrorists, tank. Terrorists, yeah. And uh, by the time we got up there and, and the picture shown to this very day, I ended up getting a photograph of, of my car before it actually caught fire. Um, as a reminder, I suppose, to say, well, you know, uh, there was a number of people injured. Uh, uh, a colleague of mine, Carl Denardio, he was injured. Uh, the... Um, uh, Deputy State Coroner for uh, no longer, but uh, Ian West was injured, uh, and uh, you know Bernie Barmer and I have done a couple of presentations together, and mm. you know uh, he gets quite emotional about it as we all do. Yeah, and he tells a story which he will about uh, you know cradling Angela Taylor and yeah. never get the smell of burnt nylon out of his nose and that type of stuff. He was a clerk of courts in those days. Yeah, but I missed it by about five minutes. But you know. I could have gone on sick leave and said, you know, I've been affected, I just missed out, but, you know, why worry about something you've got no control over? And the task force did an amazing job. They were able to uh, find the offenders, uh, and I touched base on it yesterday with Carl Minogue and just had a hatred of police. Stan and, Taylor was behind yeah, it, though, not he? Taylor, yeah, Stan yeah. Um, who's now deceased. Um, and, you know, this hatred, and they just got the explosives that were tracked back. They just put nuts and bolts and nails in the door wells of the car. Um, there was probably 20 or 30 unexploded, unexploded detonators in Russell Street um, and to see the footage inside Russell Street with all the windows that were shattered internally because with an explosion, it, 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 there's an, an explosion plus an implosion. The mm. explosion takes the oxygen away and then ex- implodes everything else. Mm. How there couldn't have been any more deaths because that's an area where there was a bus stop Mm. We had a lot of children going to the courts at those days. About one o'clock in the afternoon, the courts just finished uh, and the amount of shrapnel that was out there just to have one person died and Angela Taylor just lost a toss of leaving Russell yep. Street, uh, uh, the courts, to go and buy lunch crossing the road. Um, and, and and people might think, oh, she wasn't blown apart. She just inhaled the hot gases and she actually was burnt from the inside out, survived a number of, of, of days. But these people just didn't care didn't care at all, and the best result we've got is the government have moved in and said, okay, uh, Minogue, uh, you'll never see daylight again unless you're too infirm to be another danger to it. But they just had a hatred of police. And uh, you know, even from a, the, the task force, just one aspect which still impresses me this very day and shows the intricate and the detail an investigator must have, on the bomb they actually found a red redwood block of wood. And again, it's having that link between the offender and the crime scene. How are you going to have a link? And you know you've got to convince 12 strangers in that jury box at a later time that this person's guilty beyond reasonable doubt. And one of the key aspects, amongst other things, this block of wood, when they started getting identifying these offenders, they were able to take that block of wood and they matched it to the same fence. There was a fence that had been built at the offender's house and, yeah. the, and the source gyrations matched up perfectly. There's a direct link. Mm. So they come from that house where the crook lived, the suspect lived. It's on a bomb that's been taped there. So the intricate stuff, and they were finding pieces of the, the car on top of buildings two or three blocks away. <laughs> it was a massive. And why it, why there wasn't mass carnage, you know, there could have been 20, 30, 40, 50, 100 people killed. Yeah. Mm. But uh, more good luck than anything. And, you know, that was uh, our second and people don't identify because we're so, I suppose, so removed from it. That, like you said, it's a terrorist act. Mm. It's a it's an urban terrorist act. Mm. 
and that was the second one in Victoria because initially prior the first one we had was the um, uh, Turkish consulate in St Kilda Road many years before that mm. there was a bombing there um, and you know thank God that we are far removed from what's happening in Europe and that type of stuff with the bombings and goings on and uh, but we just can't afford to be complacent and sure we got uh, you know we had the big campaign. Uh, with terrorism and uh, through John Howard's uh, reign as Prime Minister, you know, suspect everything, report a suspicious package. But we all become complacent and we moved on. But one major issue to take away, to, to say to a lot of people when they speak to me is, is you know, you're not trained investigators, you're not this. We, we get so busy in our lives and we concentrate, we, we just got no time to think. Stop, smell the roses and tell your kids and, and yourself be aware of your surroundings. Yeah. The community are part of the solution. You are the eyes and ears of, of policing. Mm, yeah. So you see something and then the frustrations then start. You report something, you get no response. This is where the police force dropped down. There's no mm. feedback. I wonder what happened to that call. I made a call about a car, a suspicious car, or, or you might get a knock on the door. Oh, look, there was a burglary happened two doors down or there was a rape that happened uh, in this block the other day. You know, and then they might not come back. There they come in. You only see CTV camera? No, I don't. You never see them again. You don't get feedback. So how can you instill more community engagement when the police don't engage? And yeah. that's a big thing. So you become your own policing. And we, I, I know we shouldn't be in a state. We should be, about it, be able to go about our business quite lawfully and no one interferes with you. You don't interfere with anybody else as that should be, but it's not the case. Yeah. What you've got to be, and you'll know, women are better at it than what men are. They've got that sixth sense that we haven't, yeah. and they're more an analytical mind. But when you're walking around and you say, you know what, Blake just looks a bit sus, mm. you, know, you know, come on, let's cross the road. or And, and that's how we solve Denya. The fact is that lady from Australia Post delivering letters, 3 o'clock in the afternoon, because the community of Frankston was on such high alert and in such fear that she saw, didn't know who she was seeing, she saw a male person crouched down in a car in Sky Road next to what we call Nat's track now, yeah. that she made a report. No mobile phones in those days. She actually went into a house, made a call. That set the, uh, the wheels in motion that eventually identified Denya to us. We had no idea prior to that. He would have gone on killing. No two ways about it, but that was solved through the engagement of a community member. Yeah. Um, I think we've got someone coming in at about 1, 1.30 because this could go on. We would probably do part two. <laughs> but I, I asked my um, mum and sister, um, do they have any questions? So, Charlie, I want to ask them. Um, my sister wanted to know, has the job affected your mental health? The job has affected my mental health through what I said earlier about the way I was treated by command mm. in leaving the job. Prior to that, um, it hadn't affected me at all because I enjoyed and loved the work, loved the interaction. Mm. People say to me, do you miss the job? I do miss my team involvement, mm. my investigations, how I went about them, my interaction with victims' families, the thrust and parry with defence counsel at trials and being cross-examined and that type of thing. They are all the things that I miss and camaraderie. But what I don't miss and what was was what was uh, debilitating for me was the way command treated me in relation to rotating me out of the homicide squad and with no care of the 
37 years, nearly 38 years of service that I gave, not so much to the community but to Victoria Police as a loyal uh, police officer, that's what affected me mentally. As yeah. I said, I was seeing psychologists because of that. And people don't realise. They say, oh, Charlie, it's all the stuff you would have seen. And No, it wasn't. It wasn't. It's the internal politics and the way I was treated, amongst other uh, officers mm. at the time, which still continues to this very day, that's what affects you. Uh, okay. uh, but the job, no. And uh, the things that I've seen, you know, you, you thrive because you knew you are part of the solution. Fantastic. Um, um, mum said, um, yeah, typical. <laughs> mum asked um, if it's affected your family, your wife or your kids. No. Uh, being away or the, you know, well, whatever. Well, look, you know, I always say tongue in cheek. And I've met your wife too. She's very <laughs> strong. Yeah, small, but so is dynamite. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, look, uh, three kids, uh, young kids. Um, as I said, I went to the squads. Spent 10 years as operational, just general operational uniform as a detective for about 10 years. And thereafter, I was in squads. Uh, statewide and being away, uh, but she took it in a stride, uh, and she knew, and 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 I know she had my back in mm. relation to it. I didn't want to be worrying about her, and and she knew what I was faced with and the issues that I had. But she got on with her job. She's a knockabout, you know, uh, ex Braybrook girl, and um, <laughs> I, uh, you know. <laughs> Oh, what's, what's funny there? <laughs> oh, it's just the way you describe <laughs> yeah. it. That's that's t- that's you saying she's tough. Yeah. yeah. So uh, you know, <laughs> she she basically raised the kids, but and that's where I'd come in and say when the kids were great and they've turned out to be so good, and uh, I took the credit for that. But, <laughs> yeah. but when they stuffed up, I said, "Well, you raised them, I <laughs> yeah, did." Yeah, yeah. <laughs> that's good. Oh, no, I've been so lucky, and uh, it's so important. That's why I. And I, as I said earlier, with, it's so important about having that social interaction with your people that you work with so closely. And it's paid dividends. It really has. And uh, even the respect you show the subordinates, the junior people in the police force. Yeah. And I didn't know it was going to pay off, but that's that person I was, for example. I'd go to crime scenes and I'd, I'd, I'd stay at the, and, and run the investigation from the crime scene and while my detectives were out there chasing down offenders and suspects and, the, and, and witnesses and the likes, and I'd stay with the body until the undertakers came, etc. But we had a crime scene guard. Every crime scene has a guard, which is a junior police officer mm-hmm. of sorts, maybe a sergeant, doesn't it? Depends who's available. But I, and not thinking the re- end result, I would then say, we'd be sitting there, you know, waiting for the undertaker, and the crime scene guard would only finish once the body would left and we'd yeah. secure the scene. So what I would do, as a matter of course, I would say, oh, you want to have a look through the crime scene because they don't get to go in there at all. It's all taboo, apart from investigators, but it's all been processed. So I would take the young constable into the crime scene and say, look, this is the body, this is what we have did, this is what we've done, and talk them through it, et cetera, et cetera. And I would do it as a matter of course. And when I left the police force, I can tell you, it, and this is what you don't know, the impact you have, you know, as a detective senior sergeant, of, of how you were revered with junior members in the police force. They mm. look up to you and say, you know, Detective Senior Sergeant, well, no, he's God, basically. Da, da, da. Not mm. that you wanted to be and you don't want to be known as as the um, elite. And that's why I shy away from that. But that's just common courtesy. You just say, you know what, this guy is beat, or this girl has been sitting here for hours just taking names on a piece of paper and I say, okay, the body's gone. Okay, thanks for coming. See you later. You made them part of it. Mm. And I can tell you, when I left the police force, I got over a dozen emails 
from these members. And I, they said, oh, boss, you don't remember me, but I was at a crime scene and you took the time to talk me in and show me the crime scene. <clears throat> I remember that so vividly and it's, and I'm really sad to see you go, blah, blah, blah. Mm. So Lovely. the impact that senior people you have, anyone has, is treating the ones that are working for you or whatever with that respect as I did with offenders. That's paid its dividends because mm. no one's hunting me and saying, well, you've taken 20 years of my life and this type of stuff. People do wrong. It's how you treat them with respect. You deal with them and that's from the whole uh, gauntlet right up and even my detectives. If I find you disrespecting a junior police officer and just walking past them and saying, well, I'm a homicide detective, you don't need my name, I said, I'll pin your ears back. Mm. I said, we're all in the police force together. You treat them with respect. Then that comes back to appearance. And, you know, you've got to go to a deceased family. So after you've processed a crime scene, you're spending hours with the deceased family. Mm. Whilst in the back of your head, they become persons of interest because you don't know if the families have had a, a part in the killing. So you have to satisfy yourself. But you're going there. So I'm going to turn up in a bomber jacket, T-shirt and jeans and saying, oh, well, look, I'm going to solve your uh, daughter's murder. Straight away, you have that perception of saying, well, this place is going to solve my daughter's murder. It's how you're then perceived. You walk in, you're well presented, mm. you speak well, you're professional, and you, you know, you, you be honest as you can with them. Once you're satisfied that the family have anything to do with it, you say, you know what, I will be as honest with you as you want me to be. You've got husband and wife there, mum and dad, and then a lot of times... I'll say, look, they want to know, did, did, uh, did she suffer? Suffer. On the top. So you either go in there, because you know full well they're going to hear it in court anyway, mm. because court is not a court of morals, it's a court of law. Mm. They're going to hear the, the, uh, the pathologist report. They're going to hear the wounds, et cetera, et cetera. And more often than not, you're not lying to them, but you then say, well, look, I'm happy to go into you know, the injuries that your daughter had, et cetera. Sometimes the husband would say, or dad, oh, look, I'm happy, and mum might go away and then he can break it to her down the track. And that's one, as you say, did they suffer as the main stuff? And more often than not, the answer is no, and you're not telling them a lie because that's one of the beauty of learning the anatomy of, of yeah. going to the post-mortems. Mm. Someone gets stabbed, A, or shot, not that I've been stabbed or shot, hopefully, that you don't know that because the adrenaline is, is so far, far up. You think you're being punched. Correct. You don't know you got a hole and you're internally bleeding until the eye sees the blood and say, oh, that's why it's so important to support people that are injured. Mm. You know, you tell them because the brain controls so much. Mm. So you can then say, you know what, they were stabbed twice. They didn't know they were stabbed. They were running after the offender or they stayed there bleeding away. You know what, and they just dozed off basically because as they're losing blood they go to unconsciousness yep. and there's no pain because the adrenaline is taking over the pain yep. a lot of people say look down and say oh shit I've been stabbed the brain says you've been stabbed oh you're not going to survive and then they die mm. but you have this mate you're alright no worries at all da, 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 da. so and the same as being shot um, but and then there comes a time to say look more often than not well I don't believe that, that your, your daughter suffered yeah. you know, she might have been raped or this type of stuff or assaulted um, and you'd be honest with them because if you, as soon as you do not stay honest with them and they're in court when you're sitting next to that family and they hear a pathologist say bang 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 they'll look at you and say well you never told me that yeah 
and you've lost that credibility yeah. from then onwards. And they know what's coming. And you'll say to them, and we are the supporters of the family. You know, you become a, a pseudo-psychologist yourself. Mm. Say, look, the pathologist giving evidence after lunch. You're going to hear things that are not going to be pleasant. You can't show any emotion in court because you'll be ordered out. Um, so it's up to you. But if you feel, oh, no, I want to hear. But if you feel yourself getting emotional, that you're going to cry, you're going to have to leave because if, if you don't, the judge will stop proceedings, yep. as they did some time ago with a lady breastfeeding at county court. That's how pristine it is. But you are you are looking after the family and supporting them. And uh, alternatively, you're also supporting, at times, the offender's family. Yep. It's like me coming to your place and saying, James, I've just locked up your son for uh, a murder. What? So why shouldn't I support you? Yeah. You know, so we don't say, oh, you're a offenders family. I don't want anything to do with you. Yeah. We are the meat and the sandwich in that regard and, and the supporters of the families. And we tell them straight out. I said, look, you know, this is one investigation that we, my team is doing. We've got five or six others. And I would make an apology. I said, if you do ring up, because of the different families I'm dealing with, and you say, look, it's, uh, it's Mrs. Uh, Dave Wilson here. Look, it's about my daughter. Uh, okay. If they don't tell me it's about their daughter's death, they say, look, what can you tell me about it? They think you're only doing one investigation. You might know, are they the offender's family, the deceased family, and this type of stuff. So yep. you tell them from the outset and do not think, oh, you're too busy. Please ring me anytime. You give them the mobile number. Ring me. I don't want you festering. Oh, I've heard this. And more so in the country investigations. The country rumour mill, this happened. You're hearing things, ring me. And I'll tell you the facts. Put that out of your head. So you're supporting them right through. And that relationship stays with you for years. I locked someone up today for a homicide. 12 months, 18 months time, we might get to trial. And we go on. We had a uh, um, a murder of a, uh, a sex worker. Same deal. In those days, in the 80s, well, what are you worried about? She, she was only a sex worker, blah, blah, blah. That took us nearly two years to solve, but we solved it. And then in St Kilda, they've got what they call a, a sex workers uh, uh, cooperative. They become, you know, gutter crawlers, identify particular suspect cars. We, sol we solved that one. They sent us a big thank you card from all the sex workers. Thanks for caring. Unbelievable. Yeah, you know, that hit home. Unbelievable. You, know, you don't look for that. Yeah, but, uh, it's bloody nice. Day, exactly, and uh, that get that that recognition, and uh, not that you need any drive, and say, you know what, we are appreciated, and you move on. And uh, but the coppers of today think that everyone's bad out there. They're not. The majority of the community are supporters of the community uh, of the police, but they're the silent majority. All right, um, two th two more because I can hear them out there. Um, Mum said, um, you've looked after yourself, Charlie, with your weight and everything. What, have, what are you doing all these years to keep in shape? Well, I think it's just in the metabolism. I, I had the, I've got the same build as my dad. Um, I didn't, you know, you'd go to the gym and that type of stuff, but because of the work, you really didn't get involved in it, and I think I've been lucky in the metabolism. And early in that, when I joined as an 18-year-old, I never, <laughs> never drank alcohol, never had a pizza in my life. But that soon changed having worked in Footscray in, in the early days. But, you know, I'd had a, a, a bit to drink. But I was lucky enough that I didn't put put it on in relation to... Um, oh, One sec, guys. Yeah. Uh, but I was lucky, in, just in metabolism. So I, I played a bit of golf. I started going to gyms and I say, I don't know what. But now, for example, 
when the phone's not ringing, I've just picked up a, a job three days a week working for a freight company, just really, uh, doing a bit of maintenance there, and that's what I did when I left the police force. I yeah. said, well, I've been a copper for 37, 38 years. What am I going to do? And and we underestimate our values. Yeah. And so I started up a handyman business uh, and then didn't have time to do that, but just being involved and, you know, uh, doing something physical and with the mind and, and moving around. But uh, I've just been lucky, lucky. just having, yeah. Um, last thing, um, what's one saying that you've lived your life by or that rings really true for you, Charlie? Mm-hmm. Could have given me some notice. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, uh, well, it's not so much a saying, I suppose. It's, uh, Philosophy. You know, there's a lot of sayings we were taught, you know, uh, in detective training school, you know. Uh, the mind's like a parachute. It's got to be open for it to work. Um you know, mm. the shortest note outlasts the longest memory about taking notes and things like that. And But the one word is, is respect, professionalism mm. uh, throughout, and I'll tell you what, that's kept me in good stead with the whole the whole situation in life personally mm. and certainly in professional life. And we can't lose sight of the fact of, of showing the people the respect uh, and the courtesy that, that everyone deserves regardless of what walk of life they come from. Beautiful. Lovely. Well Charlie, thank you so much, mate. For coming. We'll definitely have you back at some <laughs> stage because there's a heap of stuff I wanted to ask oh. you about as well. Yeah, same. It, it was, I'm starstruck through the whole, through the yeah. whole uh, experience and I was just, just, just yeah. I've seen this man on TV for a few uh, yeah. crime documentaries and yeah. stuff. So. And just for, for the sure. record, we know a lot of, because we work in every prison in Victoria, we know a lot of uh, criminals that hate police, and um, and yeah, it's a real hatred. But um, for the record, Charlie's actually helped me with a few people um, that are on the other side of the law in the right way, and um, yeah, I think that should be noted too because I don't know, I've I've always had respect for the police. I've never had any bad dealings with them, but yeah, I just. Um, I think it's important to be noted, and a couple of people in particular I'm thinking about, uh, you've helped them without them even knowing, Charlie. Mm. So thanks, thanks so much. Thanks, mate, for, for coming on, and we'll, uh, we'll see you again. Absolutely. Thanks, Charlie. Thank you. Thanks, mate. Cheers. See ya. Hi, my name's Paul Kennedy, and I'm a sport reporter for the ABC, and when I'm not listening to the ABC, I listen to Radio Caram. Tune in and enjoy. Come on, Freddy's Kitchen in Station Street for a coffee and something nice to eat. Yeah, the pizzas are great. In fact, all the food rates down at Freddy's Caram. Caram in Station Street. Come on, come on, come on, down to Freddy's now. Come on, come on, come on, down to Freddy's now. It's a pizza. It's a mystic pizza.